So you don't get you don't get no money from the Democrats. They should be paying you like a million dollars a year. Like you're you're, you're like a secret weapon for them. Gary, would you mind repeating that slower this time? <laughs> I'm saying you're so good at what you do. I mean, you know what you're talking about. The, the, the Democrat Party should be sending you. One way, either out in the open or, or, or under the table, at least a million dollars a year for what you do. I'm back, bitches! What if you knew Fox News was just lying to you? How could you watch when you know? He was voted Variety Entertainer of the Year at the Excellence in the Arts Awards and is one of the highest arbitrage now Nielsen-rated talk radio hosts in Las Vegas. He is also a refreshing voice of logic and reason. Live from the entertainment capital of the world, Doug Basham. I know words. I have the best words. I love the poorly educated. Right under the toilet. And good morning, my fellow wokes and Republican jokes. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Doug Basham, and welcome to the Doug Basham Show right here on KSHP in Las Vegas and on social media, and to a genuine demonstration of excellence in broadcasting. The website is, not surprisingly, DougBasham.com, last name spelled B as in Bob, A-S-H-A-M as in Mary, DougBasham.com, my email, Doug at DougBasham.com. If you are new to the show, here's all you need to know. My website is just one page. That's it. On it are links to everything associated with this show, including links to all of my social media sites on which we both broadcast this show live and archive the shows. All you need to do is click on the YouTube link. It's right there at the bottom. Can't miss it. It says YouTube, huh? Once there, click on the subscribe link, then click on the link that says live, whereupon you can watch the show live or view the archive shows. 221-7283 is our call-in number here at the station, folks. If you would like to talk on the radio later in our second half hour, that's 702-221-SAVE, as in Save This Radio Show, which will be our primary and only goal every day for the rest of this week. As some of you may or may not know, our initial three-month contract with the station is up on Friday. What happens after that remains to be seen. The number 221-SAVE. As we are wont to do, we will begin today's show with our Trump brain-dead mega cult base, Dumbass of the Day. 
And today's award absolutely must go to former Trump attorney Kenneth Chesbro. And it's not for any particular comment he made, but rather the fact that this guy is an attorney. He's an educated man. And yet he sacrificed his morals, ethics, integrity, and decency, and I would add patriotism, in order to lie for the least deserving human being in the entire friggin' universe and helped him try and overturn an election Chesbro knew Trump had lost. And for that just astounding lack of everything decent, Kenneth Chesbro wins the Doug Basham Show's Trump Braindead Mega Cult Base Dumbass of the Day Award. Kenneth Chesbro, we had begun our jury selection process this morning, but I've been informed that there is a change of plea. Is that correct, Mr. Grumman? Yes, Your Honor. Are you under the influence of any drugs, alcohol, or medication today? No. Is there any medication that you should be taking that you have not taken today? No. Do you understand that you were originally charged in count one with RICO, count nine, conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer, count 11, conspiracy to commit forgery, count 13, conspiracy to commit false filings and writings, count 15, conspiracy to commit filing false documents, count 17, conspiracy to commit forgery, count 19, conspiracy to commit false statements and writings? Yes. How do you plead to count 15, conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947? Guilty. What is wrong with you? There's something very wrong with these people. These people are idiots. The time is shown, now I know that we were wrong and you will always be a prick. A fake, your parents' greatest mistake. You're the height of all douchebaggery, it's too much to take. But damn, you look so cool and still point shoes at when you've so much at heart, he must be hard for you to choose. Hey bro, you will always be a douchebag. And by the way, how do we know Chesbro knew Trump was lying? First, he said so in his guilty plea and admitted it in court under oath. Second, we can look at something his own attorney, Scott Grubman, said upon some serious questioning from MSNBC legal analyst and host of her own show, Katie Fang. Yeah, but Scott, I got to push back for a second, though. Your guy, your client pled to a felony. He's the first one to have to plead to a felony thus far. And it's not just he pled to conspiracy to commit the filing of a false document. Let's dig a little bit deeper. I mean, he pled guilty, didn't plead no contest. He said, I am guilty of count 15 in the indictment, which implicates Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman in a conspiracy to file a fake elector certificate knowing knowing that that was not true. So, I mean, your client may have gotten a probationary deal, but at this stage, he's admitted that the big lie was a lie and that everything that he was doing wasn't right. So I, I'd like to push back respectfully a little bit on you, Katie. First of all, Mr. Chesborough never believed in the big lie. If you ask Mr. Chesborough today who won the 2020 presidential election, he would say Joe Biden. You know, I'm not sure why Grubman thought this somehow painted his client in a favorable light. What he just admitted, which Chesbro did as well vis-a-vis -vis his guilty plea, 
But his own attorney just admitted that Chesbro knew all along that humanity's orange stain didn't win the election. And yet, yet, he tried to help Trump overturn the election. What kind of a person would do that, especially an educated attorney? And why would he do that? If you haven't heard my take on it, happy to share it. I can see no other reason than all Trump's co-conspirators thinking Trump actually had a shot at pulling off his coup, and they wanted a seat at the new dictator's head table. If you have an alternative reason for why people like Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough would risk their careers, their reputation, their freedom, and face financial ruin, again, I'm all ears. And we'll have more on Kenneth Chesbrough in a bit. But a few things first. Number one, it is time once again to pick your favorite cliche. The dominoes are starting to fall. The rats are deserting the sinking ship. The chickens are coming home to roost. Because today, Jenna Ellis became the fourth Georgia defendant and third former Trump lawyer to cop a plea and plead guilty. And this kind of ruins one sound clip I was going to play later. Might as well play it now. This is Melissa Murray, professor of law at New York University, making a prediction. And in so doing, she offers us yet another cliche that applies equally to this Georgia case. This is sort of a prisoner's dilemma, no pun intended, for the remaining defendants. Mm. Um, the prosecutors are not going to be receptive to plea deals indefinitely. So the real question is, Who's going to be the last co-defendant standing without a plea deal when the music stops? So there's a lot of incentives, I think, at this point, given the high-profile nature of these two plea deals, to really get their ducks in a row and you know cut bait with the prosecutors at this point in time. And I think Jenna Ellis is a prime target. The dominoes are falling, and there's a lot of wind in the prosecution's sails. You know, Jenna Ellis has been very clear about her disappointment that her legal bills have not been covered by the Trump organization or by Donald Trump himself. Um, she's referred to him, as you say, as a narcissist. Um, it seems like the wheels are coming off of this clown car. Spot on, Melissa. And nice one. The wheels are coming off the clown car. And this was the aforementioned Jenna Ellis from earlier today. Thank you, Your Honor, for the opportunity to address the court. As an attorney who is also a Christian, I take my responsibilities as a lawyer very seriously, and I endeavor to be a person of sound moral and ethical character in all of my dealings. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information, especially since my role involved speaking to the media and to legislators in various states. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado Bar who censured me 
And I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people. <laughs> Sorry, zero sympathy from coming from me. And you heard her say, if I knew then what I knew now, pardon my skepticism, but I believe she did know then what she knows now. Anyhow, Jenna Ellis, the third former Trump attorney to cop a plea. One other quick thing before we clear up a couple other things from yesterday, and I think I'll call this segment more proof of Joe Biden's cognitive decline. Had a lot of the horrible things. The world is exploding. If you take a look, I mean, the whole world is exploding. You know, I was very honored as a man, Victor Orban. Did ever, anyone ever hear of him? He's probably like one of the strongest leaders anywhere in the world. And he uh, he's the leader of... He's the leader of Turkey. The whole world is exploding. It's exploding. It's exploding. Oh, I'm sorry. That was President Treason Weasel confusing the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, with the President of Turkey, Recep Erdogan. But it's an easy mistake to make. After all, they're both dictators. And that's the key takeaway from this clip. Not that Trump confused two leaders of two countries. But that's how every legitimate news organization reported it. No, the takeaway, in my opinion, is that the orange dictator wannabe praised Viktor Orban and called him one of the strongest leaders anywhere in the world. Viktor Orban is a right-wing conservative dictator. And once again, Trump is telling his brain-dead magicult base loud and clear exactly who he admires and lusts to be a right-wing conservative dictator. And once again, his base has no problem with that. And of course Trump loves Orban. During his prime ministership, he has curtailed press freedom, weakened judicial independence, undermined multi-party democracy, centralized legislative and executive power, curbed civil liberties, restricted freedom of speech, and weakened his country's constitution. Of course Trump loves this guy. It's almost like he's taken lessons from him. Add to that, Orban criticizes the policies favored by the European Union while accepting their money, of course, which he funnels to his allies and family, leading to accusations his government is a kleptocracy. And for those who might not be aware, a kleptocracy, which is also called a thievocracy, is a government whose corrupt leaders, known as kleptocrats or thievocrats, use political power to steal the wealth and resources of the people and land they govern, typically by embezzling or misappropriating government funds at the expense of the wider population. Of course Trump loves this guy. Trump never met a dictator he didn't love. And yet, Trump calls him one of the strongest leaders anywhere in the world. Honor among thieves or thievocrats? And then there's Recep Erdogan, the president of Turkey. Reporters Without Borders calls Erdogan, quote, an enemy of the press who hides his aggressive dictatorship behind a veneer of democracy, end quote. And it's true. After a coup attempt in 2016, over 200 journalists were arrested and over 120 media outlets were closed. 
and any remaining media outlet who dares report unfavorably on Erdogan, he seizes them and shuts them down. Of course, Trump loves this guy. But two things we need to clear up from yesterday, and I think I'll leave the second one for later. First, yesterday we addressed the political demise of Jim Bag Jordan and what sadly and dangerously become our new norm, death threats and violence, as an acceptable means to achieve political means. We heard some of the threats some members of the QOP had received, as well as threats their wives had received. We heard just a nasty voice message some mega moron sent to a congressman's wife that CNN barely censored. In fact, the only thing they did bleep were the F-bombs. We heard Republican Ken Buck from Colorado say he's being evicted because his landlord didn't like his Jordan vote. We heard Republican Don Bacon from Nebraska say his wife has started sleeping with a gun beside her. We heard Republican Drew Ferguson say he's had to have a sheriff stationed at both his daughter's school and his home. I played this clip yesterday. I'd like you to hear it again. My gal, Nicole Wallace. It is the sickest thing of a sick and rotten party. Amen, Sister Nicole. And now it's gotten even worse. Two elements of these recent threats we didn't get to yesterday, both of which I think are just as dangerous, if not more so. One, the normalization of these threats and violence, and not only that, but number two, the trivialization of them. We have heard Trump and his right-wing propaganda hate media for over two and a half years now try and trivialize the January 6th attack and call the insurrectionists and murderers tourists and patriots. Trump is campaigning on issuing pardons for his fellow insurrectionists. We've even heard people try and depreciate the number of law enforcement officers that were killed. Because even though they died as a result of the insurrection, MAGA seems to think if they didn't die that exact same day, while somehow their deaths are unrelated to the actual January 6th attack, it is disgusting. Like Brian Sicknick, he died the day after the attack, and so MAGA morons under the influence of their media drool such asinine drivel as, while well, no cops died that day in a barbaric attempt to minimize their deaths, to separate them from their orange god. It is absolutely repugnant. If Sicknick and four other cops died because of the insurrection, what in the holy hell difference does it make if they died on the day of the insurrection? To reasonable, intelligent, mainstream, majority, decent Americans it makes no difference at all. And always remember, these are the same people who for decades have tried to claim an exclusivity on supporting the men in blue. Garbage. And almost as garbage as their claim to have an exclusivity on Christianity. That's just blasphemous. They'll also say things like, well, the cops held the doors open for them. Okay, so what? You think that might have had something to do with the fact that thanks to the orange pus gut, the Capitol Hill police were completely overwhelmed? 
And does that somehow exonerate the majority who broke in by smashing windows and breaking down doors or going through them after? Beating cops senseless in the process? Of course it doesn't. But this is what the rabid right does. They pick some esoteric element of any event, they repeat the living bejesus out of it, and try to make it indicative and reflective of the whole event. They pulled the same stunt with the tapes that Mother Tucker Carlson released back when he was still the top-rated host on Fox Noise, that he and his audience and Trump's base tried to use to, you guessed it, trivialize the insurrection. And what did these tapes show? The very few seconds that Carlson showed, he had hours, hundreds and hundreds of hours. He showed like a minute. It showed some of the insurrectionists walking peacefully. Okay, let's say I go for a 30-minute walk in the evening, and for the first 25 minutes, I'm just walking along the street. But then in the final five minutes, I break into a house, I beat the occupants senseless, steal some of their belongings, and walk away scot-free. Does tape of the first 25 minutes of my walk nullify what I did in the final five minutes? Would that defense stand up in court? Well, Your Honor, for the first 25 minutes, I was just walking peacefully. Here, look at the tape I got from that Mother Tucker Carlson. See? Just walking peacefully. Hardly. I'd be thrown in jail for insulting the judge's intelligence. But you see, that's where Carlson had a distinct advantage. His audience has no intelligence that can be insulted. Just look at the stupid false equivalences they're willing to both embrace and parent. Like the one we heard yesterday from Marjorie Trader Trash Eight Toes Green, who said that a, a guy that was at the sit-down protest at the Cannon Building started to attack her and actually touched her? Ew. MTG said that guy should have been shot like Ashley Babbitt. I mean, that false equivalence was so stupid, we not only made her our brain-dead mega cult-based dumbass of the day winner, today I'm going to further award her three Herschel Walkers and two Lauren Boberts. It was so stupid. Seriously, these people are so stupid. If you told them it was chilly outside, they'd run and grab a bowl and a spoon. If their IQ was any lower, you'd have to water them twice a day. And I think part of the men's problem might be when they were young, their parents were so poor, they'd cut a hole in their pants so they'd have something to play with. And after they were circumcised, the doctor threw away the wrong part. And the women, they won't buy a bidet. They just do handstands in the shower. I swear, the, the, these Magus family tree must be a cactus because all of them are just pricks. And hey, if you don't like my sarcasm, I don't like your stupid. I accidentally dated a Maga woman one time and she didn't tell me until we got back to her place. And then she asked me, would you like me to slip into something more comfortable? And I said, yeah, a coma. I mean, these people remind me of pennies, small, two-faced, and not worth very much at all. And if you gave them a penny for their thoughts, you'd get change back. If you told them drinks were on the house, they'd go get a ladder. 
And you know, for all my insults, I do try and see things from their perspective, but I just can't get my head that far up my ass. And it's ironic that so many of them profess to worship God when they're the best proof that even God makes mistakes sometimes. If I were a dog and they were a flower, I'd lift my leg and give them a shower. But back to both the normalization of violence and death threats, but more so the trivialization of them. We're seeing the exact same thing with regards to the Jim Bag Jordan threats. Yesterday, we heard one of Jordan's allies, Warren Davidson, blame the victims of the threats and essentially say it was their own fault for daring to not vote for Jordan. Scott Perry, the QOP congressman from Pennsylvania and one of Trump's January 6 co-conspirators who had his cell phone confiscated by the FBI, he actually laughed the death threats off, literally laughed them off. And the audio is a little hard to understand, so let me read from the transcript. Quote, All of us in Congress received death threats. I don't know if that's a newsflash for anybody here. There are people out in the world that dislike us and threaten us. That's nothing new. It's nothing new to any member of Congress. We all know it. That is another red herring. And let me just say this. They didn't seem to mind. No one in this town seemed to mind the pressure campaign from all the lobbyists and the special interests in Washington, D.C. in January. But suddenly, now they all mind the calls and the emails and the text and the letters and the visits from their own constituents, end quote. And then one reporter asked Perry, quote, are death threats the same as lobbyists, end quote. Perry ignored him. And then another reporter asked, you don't think they should be taken seriously, end quote. To which Perry replied, no, no, they should be taken seriously. Jim Jordan has nothing to do with that. That's the point, end quote. And you would know that for certain how exactly? The way I see it, just one January 6th co-conspirator sticking up for another one. And frankly, I don't believe either one of them. And the point is not that Jordan had nothing to do with that, if indeed that's what you believe. Personally, I don't. I have zero difficulty believing Jordan and perhaps even Trump told their lackeys to play hardball. But even if they didn't, that's not the point. The point is, number one, that the type of violent, threatening behavior we're seeing from the QOP base has become all too familiar and occurs with way too much frequency. But number two, now we have people not only downplaying it, but accepting it and trivializing it and calling death threats a red herring and a pressure campaign and comparing death threats to phone calls from lobbyists. You're talking three major false equivalences and lies right there. And not only that, but dangerous ones. But Scott Perry is a seditionist. Somehow, I'd expect nothing less. But I would say this. If you're going to normalize threats and violence, at least be honest about it. Don't further lower yourself and try to diminish or trivialize them. Just be upfront because we can all see what you're doing. You're not fooling anyone, not even the inbreds in your base. They know exactly what you're doing. They just don't care unlike we real-world dwellers who prefer democracy to dictatorships founded on threats and violence. 
And again, this is all part of the virus that has plagued the United States for the past eight years. The Trump 2016 virus, which then mutated into the Trump 2020 virus and has now deteriorated even further to its most deadly strain, the Trump 2024 virus. And Perry wasn't the only QOP member of Congress whitewashing these threats. We also had Nancy Mace, the QOP congresswoman from South Carolina. For not building, voting the will of their voters and their constituents, they're feeling that pressure, um, as they should. The people want Jim Jordan. They're feeling that pressure. They're feeling that pressure, as they should. Nancy, they're receiving death threats. That's a bit, kind of a big step beyond pressure, wouldn't you say? We'll now hear from Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large at The Bulwark. Yeah, that, that's where we are now. Uh, but uh, keep in mind, though, that the playbook did not work this time. I mean, the good news is that you had uh, more than 20 Republicans that stood up against Donald Trump, um, Steve Bannon, and thought that the idea of electing Jim Jordan was too absurd and too dangerous. So that is the good news. The bad news, however, is that the chaos is going to continue. The chaos is going to continue because the conference itself is the chaos. This remains um, Trump's party. Uh, this remains a party that is still afraid of what Steve Bannon has to say. And for Steve Bannon, this kind of chaos, this kind of fear is, is a ladder. Uh, this is, this is his, this is his brand. And uh, he has to be very, very frustrated that it did not work this time. Um, again, maybe just a green shoot that you had two dozen Republicans that looked around and said, hey, maybe we ought to stand up against the bullies. Maybe we ought to stand up against the threats. Um, maybe the critical mass um, will mean something. I don't know. Um, it hasn't It hasn't in the past. But this was interesting. It was so naked. It was so confident that if we attack people, if we threaten them, that they will cave in because they have before. And to your point, that you have people like Nancy Mace, and, and, and there was others as well, who kind of said, well, this is a red herring. This is no big deal. This is what you expect. That really was a sign that they have normalized and they expect that this kind of tactic is legitimate and this will drive the Republican conference. Like Charlie wondered, have we reached critical mass? Has the QOP reached critical mass? Well, again, as Charlie said, the bullying didn't work this time, nor did the orange-backed gorilla's endorsement. But color me unconvinced, there's no predicting Cower's behavior except to say that if past is prologue, they're likely to remain cowards. But what we've seen happen here is typical of the entire GOP, now QOP. We have known for years that most Republicans in Congress hate the ground Trump walks on. But they've been too cowardly to verbalize that in public for fear of being primaried and losing their seat in Congress. Will this turn the tide? I don't suppose we'll know for sure until they start campaigning in earnest for next year's election. And if they run on typical GOP nonsense or QOP MAGA nonsense. But this issue of the threats has once again revealed the ugliest ugliest side of the former GOP, now QOP. They don't care about an issue until it affects them personally. And I'll rephrase my comment from yesterday. Dick Cheney didn't care about gay rights until he found out his daughter was gay. 
I'll add today, Nancy Reagan didn't care about stem cell research until her beloved Ronnie was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And who knows, perhaps the 20 years of stem cell research that was defunded and outlawed by Reagan, George Herbert Walker Bush, and George W. Bush presidencies might have found an Alzheimer's prevention or cure and put an end to the suffering of untold millions around the world? The disgusting Limbaugh aberration stopped his tirades against drug addicts once he became one himself. And while threats from the Trump mob didn't seem to bother the QOP too much when they were directed at anyone who dared tell the truth about Trump, when the Trump mob turns on them, now they care about threats? I mean, I guess we can say better late than never, but I would submit a large part of one's humanity stems from their ability to care about issues before they affect them personally. But back to our brain-dead megacult-based dumbass of the day, Kenneth Chesbro. Just to refresh your memory, both Chesbro and Sidney Powell are unindicted co-conspirators in special counsel Jack Smith January 6th case in D.C., which I find very confusing. Will Powell and Chesbro now start cooperating with Jack Smith? Have they already? What if they want to, but he doesn't feel he needs them? Will he indict them at a later date? Remember, there are a lot more co-conspirators Smith could have indicted in his D.C. case. But because of the importance of this case, and I still say it will be the most important trial in this nation's history, he only indicted one person, Donald Trump. NBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin was asked the significance of both Powell and Chesbro copping plea deals. She offered up this nugget. But in your view, what is the significance of both of these two speedy trial defendants flipping on Trump? Well, certainly, Joy, the two speedy trial defendants flipping here has the advantage, as you noted, of avoiding a trial completely and allowing Fonnie Willis and her team not only to have to preview their case for former President Trump and the remaining co-defendants, but it also avoids consuming their resources needlessly. And one of the key questions is going to be, at what point do Fonnie Willis and her team go back to Judge Scott McAfee of the Fulton County Superior Court and ask him to get the trains running on time for the remaining co-defendants in this case. You know, President Trump and those co-defendants were counting on having at least five months plus jury selection to push this off. That's no longer on the table for them. And they have pretrial motions due in December. Could those be expedited? They certainly might. And that's on top of the cooperation that Fonnie Willis and her team gained from Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbro. Man, that was just solid gold. The five months Team Trump were hoping this trial for Chesbro and Powell would take is gone. Boom. We haven't heard of any unindicted co-conspirators copying plea deals with Smith. But my question is, will they? MSNBC's Alex Wagner was interviewing Gwen Keyes, who's the former district attorney in DeKalb County, Georgia, which is the neighboring bordering county to the east with Fonnie Willis's Fulton County. Gwen Keyes has her own experience with Georgia's unique RICO laws. Alex asked Gwen three questions. We'll hear them and Gwen's responses. It was a most interesting and informative exchange. 
and I was asking this question yesterday with Sydney vis-a-vis the Sydney Powell plea agreement. How does this dovetail with Jack Smith's case? Because the fake electors plot figure, there's so much cross-pollination in these two criminal indictments. There is. And if you remember with Jack Smith's case, I believe Ms. Powell was co-conspirator number three, Mr. Chesborough was co-conspirator, unindicted co-conspirator number five. If you look at both of their pleas, they were warned that pleading to this particular state court indictment might have other implications in the federal case. And so I think we're all waiting to see was, were these part of a global deal for either defendant? Have there been discussions with Mr. Smith? And and if I can interrupt here, so often I am disappointed with the follow-up questions reporters or hosts ask, in particular, reporters who never call Trump on his myriad lies. They just ignore that he just lied to them and go on to their next question. In this case, I think Alex Wagner asked the perfect follow-up question. And so I think we're all waiting to see, was were these part of a global deal for either defendant? Have there been discussions with Mr. Smith? We don't know at this point. What would be the telltale signs of a global deal if there was one? Well, I think you would see uh, maybe commitments to testify in the federal case, uh, something along those lines where there's a more direct tie. And I'm just not aware of that so far. As you understand it right now, because we don't have dates for the rest of the defendants in the Georgia case, nice. do you think Jack, Smith case, Jack Smith's case, which is set for March, is going to go before Fonnie Willis's case? I do think so. Again, we don't have any other dates on the calendar for the state court case. What we do have is the Court of Appeals dealing with the removal issues in December. And by removal issues, Gwen Keyes is referring to the defendants, including Mark Meadows, who have filed to have their case moved to federal courts. Why? Probably hoping to get a more friendly jury. But no matter, even if their trials are moved, they will still be state trials. They will still be tried by Fannie Willis's prosecutors, which means those who are found guilty will not be eligible for presidential pardons. The conversation between Alex and Gwen concluded. What we do have is the Court of Appeals dealing with the removal issues in December. I think that's going to take some time. We probably will not have a decision that allows the defendants to file their pretrial motions in the state case before the federal case. And I also know that there are certain rules where when you have a federal case like that coming up, the state cases have to yield. So we'll probably see Jack Smith's case go before some of the other defendants. And in March of next year, hopefully, again, Lots of useful nuggets of information there, brought to you by the only show who does give you useful nuggets of information on a regular daily basis. Now, you heard Gwen Keyes say she doesn't know if there's been a global agreement. Andrew Weissman, former lead prosecutor in the Mueller non-hoax Russia investigation, seems to think neither Powell nor Chesbro have a global resolution. You know, it, it also, I mean, I think, Andrew, one of the things we've talked about so much is if, if Trump can say that he believed he'd won. I mean, it also gets at how the entire ethos of everyone involved in the coup knew three things for sure. One, that Trump had lost. Two, that there was no fraud. And three, that the political path and the pressure campaign was all they had to work with. Uh, absolutely. Um, but I, I will say, just to complicate 
um, the picture for Jack Smith is it seems very clear that Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough don't have what's called a global resolution. In other words, they resolve their state criminal liability if they testify truthfully, but they clearly don't yet have federal protection. Um, and both of them are widely reported to be unindicted co-conspirators in Donald Trump's uh, indictment in D.C. So it, it's going to be a very interesting strategy for Jack Smith, whether he is willing to essentially immunize them, essentially strike the same kind of deal where they don't get any potential jail time if they testify truthfully, or whether he's going to insist on more um, as a condition of sort of going forward. So I do think there's going to be a calculus that he has to make about how much he needs their testimony and what kind of deal he is willing to give them in order to gain their testimony. But I agree um, very much with Tim that there is there's an awful lot that particularly Kenneth Chesbrough can give to uh, the federal government in terms of that case. That's interesting. We got two experts, both former attorneys, both former prosecutors, one a former district attorney, and yet they kind of have somewhat opposite opinions. Neither is positive, but they're kind of on opposite sides. Former federal prosecutor Christy Greenberg threw another caveat into the mix. We'll hear the question she's asked and her response. We don't know what they'll say, but we do know, right, Christy, they're going to be cooperating. Well, yes and no. So outside of the courthouse, you have Chesbro's lawyer who says he didn't snitch on anyone. Ah. And he also said, you know, he just accepted responsibility for his own behavior, but he wasn't the architect of trying to subvert democracy. So minimizing, ah. minimizing his own con client's conduct and saying that he wasn't providing the goods. Now, maybe he's bluffing. We know that one of the conditions is they're not supposed to talk about any of this to the press or anybody else. So we, we won't have full visibility into what they shared. But the fact that his lawyer said that right after the plea gives me some real pause as to whether or not they are actually going to be the star witnesses they would need to be in order for these deals to be justified. I don't know. The general consensus opinion seems to be Chesbro wouldn't have gotten the sweetheart deal he received unless he had, as Christie said, the goods. But we'll see. And Christie wasn't finished throwing intangibles into this legal monstrosity. And now she seems to almost agree with the general consensus that Chesbro likely does have the goods. We know what the sentence is, which is a slap on the wrist, no jail, and no crime of moral turpitude. So, so keep they his can, law license. So they can is... both practice law still. And but we don't know that missing piece. Ah. What is the cooperation? What, what are they getting? What are they getting for it? And that is, you know, that is sort of the black box right now. Clearly, Fonnie Willis thinks it's valuable, but it will remain to be seen whether or not it is valuable enough to justify that kind of a lenient sentence. In Chesbro's plea deal, he requested and was granted to plead guilty under Georgia's First Offender Act. NBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin elaborates. 
Georgia has a version of what's called a First Offender Act that allows someone to plead guilty to a felony, but then essentially never have that felony entered on their record, provided that they comply with all of the conditions of their probation sentence. So if Ken Chesbro behaves himself at the end of the three years of probation that he's expected to get, it will be as if he never had any felony conviction at all. And that was critical for his legal team. Why? Because Ken Chesbro is a lawyer. And in most jurisdictions mm. where you're licensed to practice law, if you were convicted of a felony, that license immediately evaporates. And for Ken Chesbro, his livelihood depends on that. That was important to him and his legal team in any plea deal. And it looks like they got that today. Boom. Another interesting nugget. Yes. And just like McDonald's, the nuggets just keep on coming. Here's former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance with yet another interesting nugget. Well, of course, there was pressure on both Powell and Chesbro because they were on the eve of going to trial. And that's when defendants tend to feel the pressure most acutely. But now they've put a different kind of pressure on these remaining defendants. You know, Sidney Powell pled to misdemeanors, no prison time. Chesbro had to buy a felony in order to get a guilty plea, but also no time in custody. Those sorts of deals are for the people who get in early. And the calculus that the rest of these defendants have to engage in is do they believe in their case? Do they want to go to trial or do they want to go ahead and try to cut a plea agreement now while their cooperation is still valuable enough to prosecutors to bring a good deal? Because frankly, it looks like we're past the misdemeanor deal stage, at least for these top level defendants. And some of them may have to agree to go into custody for a period of, of time, months, maybe even years in yeah. Georgia state prison yeah. in order to get a deal. Whoa, I didn't know that. The longer you wait to cop a plea, you just might have to do some prison time in order to get a deal. Now, you see, that's a nugget for people like me who aren't attorneys, even though I play one on the radio. <laughs> Kidding. Joyce was then asked to compare Jack Smith's case, wherein he indicted just one person, the malignant mango, and Fonnie Willis's case, where she indicted a whole boatload of people. Joyce offered this nugget. Well, I think both approaches are, are valid. Jack Smith opted for streamlined in an effort to get the former president in front of a judge and a jury as quickly as possible. Fonnie Willis took a comprehensive approach, trying to fully vindicate the interests of Georgia citizens in seeing those who attempted to overthrow their election brought to justice. You know, there was some criticism of Willis early on. I was not among the critics who were concerned that she had overindicted the case and involved too many defendants. I continue to think she was fully prepared to go to trial with all of those defendants in the courtroom in a prompt fashion. But in reality, prosecutors know that when you indict a big conspiracy like this, a lot of people will end up pleading guilty. They cooperate. They make your case stronger before you get to trial. It's likely to me that she will get to try the defendants in one lump group. It'll be a number of defendants who will be in single digits, and she will have her case bolstered by additional cooperating witnesses. And I have to ask, aren't these sound clips from real experts more interesting to listen to than the drivel Trump's base listens to on Fox, as in witch hunt, 
hoax. Trump did nothing wrong. And of course, their usual tearing down of our democracy preserving institutions, corrupt weaponized DOJ, corrupt weaponized FBI, corrupt DAs, corrupt judges, corrupt prosecutors, corrupt juries, election interference, liberal media, and Hunter Biden. And of course, they're quote-unquote experts who are only allowed to appear on their shows if they say the exact opposite of what everyone in the real world knows to be true. In short, no substance, no facts, and definitely no nuggets. This show and this show alone brings the nuggets, but only for those who have the nuggets to hear the truth. 221-7283 is our caller number here at the station, folks. If you would like to talk on the radio, that's 702-221-SAVE. To the phones we charge, and we will start with Forrest. You're first up. Thanks for calling. Uh, Yeah, Doug, great show. Um, Boy, a lot of facts in there. Uh, I hadn't actually heard Gwen Keys before, and she was right on. Um, But I continue to believe that the vice is closing and the the big beneficiary, I believe, is Fonnie Willis because, like, she doesn't have to play her card. She doesn't have to have a five month delay. She doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. Um. She gets to go after a very um, smaller group that is shrinking all the time. And um, I just think it's every single. I you didn't mention one thing on your show that said. Um, this would be this will help Donald Trump, and the reason you didn't do that is because nothing is helping Donald Trump. Donald Trump is caught in a vice that'll start in March uh, with Jack Smith, but by the time Jack Smith sums up his case, Trump will have secured the uh, primary uh, for election for uh, himself, and um, he will be the person that Joe Biden faces, and he will be in all sorts of trouble at that time. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. A convicted felon running for president. My God. Yeah, that's all I've got. Listen, Jug, have a good one. Hey, you too, Forrest. I appreciate you calling. 221-7283 is a caller number. 221-SAVE, area code 702. Forrest is right. Fonnie Willis doesn't have to give away any secrets. Trump doesn't get the five-month delay he was hoping for, and his trial starts in March. Because we know Judge Chutkin, as critical as I've been of her over her gag orders, which I thought were wholly inadequate, she has said she's not changing that date. And if he doesn't start smartening up and stop threatening people, she'll move the date up even sooner. So we'll see. 221-7283 is the number. Big Bad John, you're next. Thanks for calling. Hey, Doug. Hey, John. Hey, I, uh, um, I've never read the Georgia RICO statute, but it's my understanding it's very broad. So, um, you know, a simple conspiracy, a, a garden variety conspiracy case is uh, an agreement to commit a, a crime and uh, one simple act in furtherance of that crime. So, um, my my uh, reading of tea leaves is um, this Georgia RICO statute is very broad, very powerful, and I think Trump's goose is already cooked. I think you know all you need is uh, one of those two lawyers to 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 offer up uh, some uh, you know irrefutable evidence that they had an agreement. 
to try to steal the election. Uh, and Trump was part of it, and he's done. And they're lawyers. Yep. They documented the case. They might have recorded, secretly recorded conversations. Um, if they had half a brain, they knew who they were dealing with. And uh, like I said yesterday, I can't try to put yourself in Trump's shoes. You've got four criminal indictments. You've got 90, 91 felony charges pending against you. People are flipping on you. He's got to be going a little bit crazy. Yeah. He's got to, like Forrest says, the vice has got to be tightening on him. I, I can't possibly imagine uh, the agony. I wonder how he gets to bed at night. I mean, <laughs> uh, if, if, if I was him, I would need a strong prescription uh, to get to sleep because uh, his mind has just got to be racing uncontrollably all day, every day. Uh, and, and I said yesterday, I, I don't think I could survive it. I, I think it's going to kill him. He's old. He's fat. He's out of shape. Um, I think it's going to kill him. Well, you know, John, further to your suggestion that, that he would need some kind of sedative to go to sleep, maybe we could call Michael Jackson's doctor. <laughs> He's from Vegas, isn't he? He's a Vegas I guy. I think so. <laughs> What's his name? What is it? I forget his name. Hey, pal. Yeah, You're the guy who gave uh, Michael Jackson the fentanyl or propofol, whatever the hell that was, give give the orange fraud a call. Maybe he could use your services. Exactly. No argument here, John. All right, man. Great show as always, Doug. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate it. You take care. Two two one seven two eight three is our caller number here at the station, folks. If you'd like to chat, that's seven zero two 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 one. S-A-V-E, as in save this radio show, because after this week, we don't know where we're going. 221-7283 is the number, area code 702. I'll tell you, why stop where we did? We have time for more nuggets, right, Justin? I thought this exchange between my gal Nicole Wallace and Andrew Weissman, again, former lead prosecutor in the Mueller non-hoax Russia investigation, I thought this was yet Another nugget. You know, Andrew, I asked you about sort of prosecutorial inertia and just the power of, of, of Scott Hall was the first. I remember I came on the air. There was one sentence. I was Googling who he was. And of course, he takes us right to the break in at Coffee County. Sidney Powell, wackadoodle as she is, takes us straight to the executive order to seize voting machines. But it's just misdemeanors. Now we're getting a bigger fish. We're getting one of the legal architects, someone Liz Cheney in those hearings described as essentially plopped into the Justice Department after Trump had lost reelection to carry out the coup. Are you are you feeling like that question about inertia is starting to be answered by Fannie Willis? Absolutely. Um, you know, this is the strategy when you indict big is that good things happen uh, and you have people who start flipping and they roll onto each other. Uh, and as Tim pointed out, the reason this is more significant than Sidney Powell is because if you look at count 15, which is what he pled to, the other people involved in that conspiracy are names that we know up to and including the former president. And as you mentioned, Nicole, this it goes to the very heart of the conspiracy of the January 6th scheme. It relates to the fake elector scheme. It relates to the Jeff Clark DOJ scheme. It relates to the pressure on Mike Pence. It is really core. And you have somebody who is a lawyer, a key architect saying, I committed a crime in connection with the fake elector scheme. So the pressure on, if not directly 
Donald Trump, because we know that um, Chesbrough, at least from all accounts, had no direct dealings with Donald Trump. But he had direct dealings with other people, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman. So that, again, rolling up, this is how you make cases. You, you move up the chain, and that is exactly what we're seeing. So this is an incredibly strong development on a core part of the case. It's not Coffee County. It's not a small, segregable piece of the scheme. It is core. So this is really quite a big development. Before how much I love Andrew Weissman, he may not be the most electric or electrifying or exciting legal analyst on TV, but he is one of, if not the most knowledgeable ones. And he always has, as I say, nuggets to share. Real quick, the music's playing. I told you yesterday how Judge Chutkin had issued a temporary stay on her own gag order because Team Trader appealed it. She didn't have to do that. She could have kept the gag order in place while it was being appealed, but she didn't. She mistakenly, in my opinion, issued a stay. And so, what did Mango Mussolini do? He went right back to attacking special counsel Jack Smith on his anti-social media site, once again calling him deranged. If I were a more conspiratorial kind of person, I might be tempted to wonder if that was the goal behind Trump's attorneys filing their appeal, to free Trump up to start attacking and inciting violence against the people he was forbidden from attacking as a result of the gag order. And whether that was the goal or not, that was the result. And I find it difficult to believe Judge Chutkin didn't know that would be the result. So again, I'm in a quandary as to why our judicial system, which Trump is destroying people's faith in, offers him even more opportunities to do just that. I gotta go, folks. They're playing the music. That means it's a wrap. I'll tell you what, we'll do it. <laughs> I wasn't sure I was going to go there. We will do this all over again tomorrow, hopefully with you. Until then, take care.